Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Hey everyone, this morning, we're going to try to finish up. I promise you we're going to finish up the uh, whole thing here on uh, predestination. Even if we don't finish it, we are finished with it. Let me assure you. Let me assure you, okay? But uh, anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a good conversation. It's a good discussion. And to kind of take us back just a, a little bit to set the context, what started this in terms of our uh, sort of wrestling with it a little bit was at the end of chapter 6 where Jesus is talking to, uh, to his disciples and he's already experiencing some resistance, certainly, but now rejection of, uh, of himself in terms of his ministry. And so uh, what has already happened is, is that some of the people who had gravitated toward him bec- on the heels of his uh, feeding of the 5,000, remember, remember that great miracle that he did? And the people saw, oh, this is fantastic. We want this kind of king to be our king. Not only will he be a Messiah that will take uh, Israel back to its uh, former glory, but also he's going to bring about massive social change and there will be no more hunger, there will be no more poverty, there will be no more people that are struggling with life because it will be so wonderful we'll have this, this kind of Messiah. And so then when Jesus started to articulate what he's really about in terms of the kingdom of heaven and in terms of a spiritual walk with him, irrespective of whether your stomach is full or not, it started to occur to them that this isn't the, this isn't the kind of Messiah they were looking for. So what's already starting to happen is that people that had gravitated toward him uh, had a kind of a, an attraction for, uh, for that uh, idea of what he was about. They start to drift away. And, and the Bible talks about that, that some of the disciples that had followed him, they weren't the twelve, but it was among the, the throngs of other people that were following him, they start to slip away as well. And so then on the heels of that, then Jesus, in, in, at the end here of chapter 6, answers the, uh, the disciples after Peter said that you alone have the words of life. Then Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So that's what, that's what launched our conversation last week in terms of what exactly does that mean? How, how does, you know, what, what is the relationship of God's foreknowledge in something, which is what is indicated here, and as well as the relationship of that to God's what's called predestination. Does, does he preordain people to, uh, to make certain decisions in their life, or is it just simply they make that decision and he knows ahead of time in terms of what that will be? So we talked some about, last week, we talked some about the, the doctrine of predestination. When you look at the doctrine itself in terms of the way that the scriptures present it, it's always talked about in terms of being a comforting or a reassuring thing for people that are already of faith. That, that if you're already a Christian, the doctrine of predestination is a comfort to you 
if you run into situations in life or moments in life where you might doubt your faith or you might struggle with, does God really love me? How do I know that his promises are there? And because we're all human and because we live in a sinful, broken world and we ourselves contribute to it, it it is easy to go there, especially when you're dealing with situations in life that make absolutely no sense, or you think to yourself, how could a loving God allow this? You know, when something occurs that, that you think, it just, there's, there's, there's no way to get your brain wrapped around it. Or when somebody else that you care about comes to you and expresses those doubts and says to you, well, I just can't believe that the loving God would allow that. I think it was last week that I was reading, uh, I was reading a, an article about Aaron Rodgers. Do you know who Aaron Rodgers is? Did you see that? Some of you might have read that. Now, let's just lay our Packer bias aside. Okay, okay, we know there are actually good people in Green Bay. We know that, yes. But what did you read about what his... His, uh, his struggle, he has a spiritual struggle, and he articulated that in this interview. And his spiritual struggle, he said, was, was that he, he doesn't indicate what, what uh, religion or denomination he was raised in, but, you know, it, 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 well, up in Wisconsin, he's either Catholic or Lutheran. It's one or the other, right? All right. But he's actually from California, so I, I don't know exactly what, what the, uh, the actual thing is. But... But what he articulated was, was a question or a comment that a lot of people today have asked. And even within our Christendom, we, we wonder about it ourselves. We ask the question, is how in the world could a loving God send people to burn forever in hell? Anybody have an answer for that one? See, that's a hard one, isn't it? And we think, yes, okay, we have our theological answer, but, but isn't it kind of hard to get our brains wrapped around that? And there are people, and he indicates that he's one of them, who has said that on the basis of that, I can't believe. On the basis of that, I can't, I, 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 I refuse to believe that there would be such a thing. So if that's the way God is, loving God, but yet he sends people to hell, well then, I can't believe. And there's a ton of people that are in the same sort of struggle. So one of the struggles that came out of the Middle Ages when, uh, when people were dealing with issues of heaven and hell was the question of why is it that some people are saved and some people are damned? And more significantly, which one am I? Right? Which is kind of what we all want to know. I mean, even if, even if somebody sort of claims, makes a sort of public claim that says, well, there is no heaven, there is no hell, you just live your life today, and then when, when it's done, it's done, and that's the end of it, okay? I suspect that at the deepest corners of the heart and the soul, there still is that question. The kind of, well, okay, rationally, makes sense, you live, you die, that's it. But what if you're not right? What if you're off a little bit? So that question sort of, sort of is dangled out there in terms of the scriptures, and I think that people have, have struggled with it. And so the question becomes, is there something in the Bible that will explain that? And for some people, 
trying to answer that question by using the doctrine of predestination. As we looked at the, the passages from Romans last week and Ephesians, it kind of makes sense that, well, if God has preordained some people to be saved, then it kind of makes logical sense that what? There must have been some people that were preordained to be damned. All right? So the teaching of that, or the, the, the theological term for that, is called double predestination. And it came from a guy by the name of John Calvin, who was one of the reformers in the mid-1500s. And, what, and I, I have some notes here for you so we can follow along. Is that he taught that before the creation of the world, the sovereign God preordained who would be damned and who would be saved. So, so the, what Calvin did was he went too far. That's where the idea of double comes from. It's that, that yes, the scriptures talk about the idea that those who are uh, God's elect, those who are saved, God knew way before the creation of the world who that would be. And if you ever have doubts about that, then you can draw on the doctrine of predestination and say, well, I might have doubts about it, but you know what? Before the creation of the world, God knew that I would be his. But you have to stop there. You have to stop there. Because to add to it the next logical part of the equation, and then therefore God preordained somebody to be damned. See, the Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible's kind of silent about that. What the Bible does say is that people who don't have faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, who haven't received that in that sense or accepted it, whatever word you want to use, those folks are damning themselves. Those folks are saying, I can get to heaven some other way other than through the merits of what Jesus did for me. And if it's not about Jesus doing something for me, well, then it's got to be about me doing something for me. And what's the problem with me doing something about me? A cracked egg cannot make itself whole. That was the point two weeks ago. Right? <laughs> but, he, but see, once it's broken, it's broken. That's the point. Okay. By the way, somebody said that you could go ahead and use the cracked egg. Please do not use the cracked egg. Somebody, taught, somebody emailed me later and said that, that once you crack an egg, the uh, bacteria gets in there or whatever's in there. So, yeah. So health authorities have, have affirmed, right? Medical authorities have said that. Yes, good. Okay, thank you. All right, so here's what, here's what happened. Here's what happened. My theory in religious life and theological world is that everybody reacts to somebody. And what happens in theological thinking is, and religious thinking, is that somebody presents something and then somebody else says, oh no, that could not possibly be right. We have to go a different direction. So when Calvin came out with the teaching on double predestination, you can maybe appreciate the effect that that had on the religious world. Number one, it affected people. If, if somebody thought or believed that they were among the people that were preordained to be damned, what impact would that have on that person emotionally, do you think? Depressed, Depressed and despair. I mean, talk about giving in to the idea of the fatalism of the day, then what's the point? The other part of it is, hey, I can live any way I want to because I'm already what? Yeah, see? All right. So that would have affected, what, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. What did you say? Once damned, always damned. 
I mean, in that sense, that's what that was, see? And so that became that belief. All right, what impact do you think it might have had on those that believe they were preordained to be saved? I'm good. So I can live any way I want because what? See, now again, not whether they would or not isn't, wasn't so much a point, but it, it would lead to that, right? It's like, I'm already there, so therefore, why not just do whatever you want, live whatever you want, and there's no sense of, you know, judgment. What sort of impact do you think it might have had on evangelistic efforts <laughs> in the 1500s? Yeah, why would you need it? See, why would you need it? Now, now maybe, and Calvin believed in this, this idea of civic improvement. So one of the things that he believed was that where the gospel is present, one of the marks of the gospel is that people are living the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, you know, patience, kind of, all those in Galatians, okay? And so his belief was that, that if that was the case, if people are living out the fruit of the Spirit in their relationships, in their families, in their homes, and in society, that could have a positive effect on society, could it not? Okay, so there was some uh, value in evangelizing because then maybe perhaps that would motivate people to be better citizens, to be better neighbors, you know, to pick up their leaves when it blew on your other part of the yard. Yeah, I mean, stuff like that. Okay, all right. All right, so, so Calvin in the mid-1500s is preaching and teaching this. Well, there was a guy by the name of James Arminius. And James Arminius was ardently opposed to the idea that God would pre preordained half the world to be saved, half the world to be damned. So he and his followers, who were not coincidentally called Arminians, in the late 1500s, he taught, no, that faith and salvation was not a result of God preordaining it, but rather that one's individual responsibility and decision and free will is what determined that. And again, it was in, in response to the Word, so everybody's happy about God's Word doing this, but the emphasis was on the idea that when you hear the Word, then you have an opportunity to respond, and the response would be some form of free will, that you would make a decision, that you would have come to a place in your life where you would say, I confess that Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. I want him in my life. I want to follow him. I want to believe in him. And then through some sort of personal revival of the heart, then, then one could be assured. And then once you, you took that on in terms of accepting Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then what would happen is you would have some sort of uh, religious experience to go with that because it would feel uh, very good. And then you would live out the... Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, in some way in your life and in your family and in society and, and that sort of thing. So again, because everybody reacts to somebody, you can see where Arminius was very influenced by Calvin and he was very upset about what Calvin... Because basically Calvin says, it's out of your hands, right? You're born into the world and you're either born in or you're born out and there's no two ways about it. Because the Sovereign Lord has determined this, and because the Sovereign Lord has determined this, that's the way it is, and you just have to live with it. So everybody that's in 
would feel good, and everybody that's out would feel terrible, and then that would, that would sort of say, well, your station in your spiritual life is what it is. So you can see where there would be a great appeal to the Arminian way of thinking, because now it's not so much about what God has preordained, but now it's about individuals can say yes or individuals can say no. Yeah, Mark. Well, after, I've got a, I need to question, but I got, after John Calvin comes out with this, these statements and people hearing and, and believe he's right, how do they know? How do they know which one they are? Oh, uh, okay, I lost you. What? How do they know if they're damned or if they're saved? So, I mean, they say, okay, I believe John Calvin's right. We're, we're preordained. But how do they know which, which side of the fence they're on? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how... It's like, okay, but... Yeah. There's some things that my Lutheran brain just cannot... I can't get my head wrapped around that. Well, and it may be that they wouldn't know until like the very end. True. All right. But if you thought that you were, I mean, on the one hand, if you thought that you were out and it turns out you're in, (laughs) you know, eternal life would be awesome. I mean, it would be like, oh, I didn't, I I thought I wasn't in the club. I, I thought I... I didn't have a ticket, and then when I got to the ballpark, they said, come on in, and not only can you be in the ballpark, but come up to the suite up here where you can have all you can eat and all you can drink, and then you never have to leave. I mean, how sweet that would be, but what if you thought you were in, and it turned out you were out? And they said, you don't even get out of the parking lot. You can't even stay in the parking lot. I mean, so... What I would say about that is that that would, could, maybe could, maybe is a better word, cause a great deal of uncertainty. See, where would your reassurance be then? And Lord knows we need enough reassurance in this life, heavens. Because the doubts and the fears and the naysayers and all the stuff of the world, and then of course the devil jumps in there and says, yeah, how do you really know? Yeah, whoa, I know you. How do you really know? And so then it's like, ooh, how do I really know? So the reassurance aspect of this is critical, and that's really where the doctrine of election or predestination was intended. See, sometimes it's tempting to take something in the context of something in the Bible and lift it out of that context and put it over here and say, okay, that, see, that Bible says it right there. Well, yeah, it does, but it said it in that context, so keep it in that context. Don't, don't pull it out of there and say it says something else when then it's saying more than it's intended or it's saying less than it's inten- intended. Okay, I have a couple hands. Keith, you had your hand up. Yeah, I look at this pretty much as heaven is with God and hell is without God. And even though there's... A, you know, speaking about predestination stuff is, I'm not sure how you do this, but I know there's people in this world who I would never get along with and who will never follow me and we go separate paths. Now, is that predestination too? But I mean, that's the same type deal where... What are you going to do if those people are in heaven with you? That's the question. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, so, so part of the struggle is when we even think about free will, for example. So... Some people say that 
that everything, that every decision you make and everything you do in life is part of God's plan or part of his blueprint. And so like I drove to church today, that, I mean, it's kind of a lame example, but the, the, the job you have, the person you marry, the, the church you go to, the state you live in, the everything. And, and so for those people, sometimes I think they're looking for the comfort of certainty in a very uncertain world. And so the hope is that, well, God has sort of put this all together somehow, and that then if I can figure out what his will is, and you often hear people say that, well, I just want to know what God's will is in this thing in a more specific way. Just for what it's worth, please don't ask me what I think God's will is in a particular situation. <laughs> I don't know, okay? The way that I discover God's will is that I trip over it. In other words, it's there, and I go, oh, there it is. But some people are looking for the certainty of that, see? And the uncertainty of the world that we live in certainly can add to the struggle that we have. Uh, Bob, you, and then uh, Phil. Well, I was just going to comment that we seem to be leaving the Holy Spirit out of this whole conversation. And without the Holy Spirit's work in you, you can't do anything. We haven't gotten to the Lutheran stuff yet, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. This was also in Calvin stuff, and, and Arminius did not believe people were totally fallen. Right. He believed there was a good somewhere in you yes. good so that you had the ability to. Change. That's correct. And that was the difficulty that where Lutherans would have trouble with that. And okay. Also, it went all the way back to Pelagius in the third century. Now we're getting into serious dead guys now. Okay? Yeah. But see, what it reminds us of is that people have forever struggled with these things. And part, I, think that, uh, I think a large part of the struggle is fueled by uncertainty. How do I really know? And, and when you think about what faith is, faith is part, a big chunk of faith is that you know and you didn't know. Or you act on it, but you, you don't really know. So that's what faith is. What, how, what's the definition of faith? The certainty of what? Things not seen. Yikes. Do you really want to live your life in faith? If you do, I hope you do. But think about what that means. And so it's, it's, it's not so much what we know, but it's what we believe. But we also base what we believe on what is given to us in the scripture regarding who Jesus is and what he did. But at the end of the day, it's still what? Faith. Still belief. Yeah, Phil. So where I think we, we as humans, start to get lost in the weeds with the teachings of Calvin or, or, uh, or, or James, um, Arminius, is we're trying to interpret the entirety of God's knowledge through a human lens. We're, so for example, we are all on this earth in this plane of reality existence for a very temporary time in terms of a, 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 a universal scale. We're here for what, maybe a hundred years tops. God is outside of time. He's eternal. So the arrogance of us being able to know who is saved and who is damned from, from the perspective of God's enti entirety knowledge of throughout all e existence of the universe and time is, is quite arrogant. So 
even though I may believe that God has the foreknowledge of who will be in heaven and who will be in hell, I, I am not arrogant enough to know to say that I know who those people specifically will be. Right. I can, I can just live, like you said, by, by faith um, that those who I care about and, I mean, even those who I may not care about in this life are in heaven because, I, I, in the end, I want everyone to be in heaven. Yeah. I, know, I do know that not everyone will be, but I, that doesn't mean that I know who specifically will and won't be. Yeah. Nor do I know by whose actions, like, that whether they will be saved or damned. Like with uh, the the um, the man, the thief on the cross with Jesus. Like yeah. he was saved at like that eleventh hour. I don't want to cut it that close, but <laughs> nor, nor do I hope anyone else does. But you know, if that if that's what happens, then you know, like God may know that it in it. God does know that in advance. I would say. Right. I don't know that. Do you want to come up here and teach? By the way, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that we're thinking somewhat at times rational beings, we go there, okay? We go there. And sometimes our own smartness or our own intellectualness gets in the way of simple childlike faith, which is kind of what Jesus talks about, you know? And, and it, we, att- we attempt to over-explain uh, over things or over-intellectualize things, and then we end up filled with even more doubt and fear and uncertainty, okay? Well, let's look real quick at just where Luther was coming from, and then you can kind of see where there was some, some, uh, some difference there, uh, differences there. So Luther, he's in the late 1400s, the 1500s, he's doing his thing, and he stressed that faith is a gift created by God in the hearts of people through the Word and through baptism. So see, it, for Luther, it wasn't... I mean, remembering he's coming out of his uh, Catholic background, but the word in sacrament was a big, huge thing for him, right? And so his thing was the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit working through the word works to change people's hearts. And the reason why that's necessary is because people are by nature spiritually dead, Ephesians 2. So if people are by nature spiritually dead, then they don't have any so-called good in them that would somehow merit favor with God or that it would even be good enough or an impulse to make a decision. See, so Luther was not into the decision theology like Arminius was. And Luther and Calvin, they, they, they butted heads over, over this. So Luther went back to, back to the scriptures. And the other part of it is, is that because not only are people by nature spiritually dead, they're also by nature hostile to God. So when you're hostile to God, why would you even want to connect with him in the first place, right? So there's some sense of the, the, the total depravity, the spiritual depravity of people in the inability to do anything but to reject God. And that's why it takes the Holy Spirit to come in to work faith in a person's heart, and then as faith is worked in that person's heart, whether that's a little baby infant or whether it's like, a, like an adult person, irrespective, that faith gets worked in the heart, and then when faith gets worked in the heart, it's nurtured by the Word, it's nurtured by the sacraments, and, and the, the person matures in their faith. So the notes there that faith is a trusting uh, the strength of which grows over time, nourished by the continual feeding 
of the word and the sacraments. So, you know, we've struggled a little bit with the idea that could a person who comes to faith at some point reject the faith? And we've wrestled over that. That's kind of where the, uh, the uh, arm wrestling over once saved, always saved, or once baptized, always baptized, that kind of struggle with that. But could you starve your faith to death? You could. I mean, again, would it? I, you know, I don't know if it would, but could it? And, and again, if, you, if a person was to starve their faith, how would they go about doing that? In the same way that you could starve, you put a plant into the ground, and then you don't feed it, you don't water it, you don't, there's nothing that is nourishing it, could it, it could, okay? So there's always that, that I, I, I think the point is, is that that makes it important to remember to, to, to do the feeding, the, the word and the sacrament in, in your life. Number two, faith is an accepting or receiving of Christ as Savior and Lord. And so we've, t- we've talked about that, that, that from a from Lutheran perspective, we like the word receiving better than we like the word accepting. But the Lutheran confessions actually use both. So we don't get too hyper about it. Uh, well, I do, but, uh, but we, don't, we don't have to do that. And then the third part is eternal life in heaven is not contingent on how strong a person's faith is or whether you can see the visible presence of it. So uh, the example of that would be, um, think about your week last week, and then compare it to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. How many of you were a 10 in every single one of those (laughs) this past week? None of us, okay. So again, but faith is still there, right? So that's that's the, the point of that. So what assurances does God give us upon which we can be certain of eternal life? And, and this is kind of a, a nice way to wrap this up in terms of, okay, what's the takeaway of assurances that we can have in a world that is, is more than happy to dump doubt on you? The devil is more than happy to want you to question your faith and say, oh, you couldn't possibly be saved, that kind of thing. Uh, what, what can we do? So three passages um, jump off the page for me. First one, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So can you be certain of your salvation? Of course you can. Of course you can. Because it's by grace that we're saved. And remind us again, what's the definition of grace? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what I heard. Yeah, yeah. Just for the sake of the uh, of the podcast, what uh, what what's what's the definition? God's what? Unconditional or unmerited love. That's right. All right. The second one is from Luke twenty three. Someone referenced that earlier. Forty three. The thief on the cross. Jesus is talking to him. He said to him, "Truly, I say to you." Today you will be with me in paradise. As Keith pointed out, what heaven is, is with me, with Jesus. And at the point of death, you die in Christ, you are in Christ. Nothing changes that after death. And then when the next time you wake up is when? You're in heaven, right? And nothing's changed. See, that's the beauty of that. And then the third one, this one from from 1 John 3, I have to give a shout out to my wife, Victoria, she, uh, she kind of does some cool stuff. She memorizes scripture. I don't know if any of you do that. 
It's very helpful when somebody in your life messes up and then you can give them a Bible verse right off the top of your head. It's very awesome. I, I, have, to, I have to work on that a little bit. I just say, you know, honey, God is love. Yeah. <laughs> and she says, I'll see that and raise you with Jesus wept. How about that? <laughs> All right, well, so 1 John 3, this is really great. I love this verse now that, that, uh, that I've included it here. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. That's before God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. How does your heart condemn you? What, what are the sneaky ways that your heart condemns you? Doubt, Doubt is a big one. Guilt. What about Guilt. Have you ever like hung on to guilt way longer than you should have? And even longer than God wanted you to? He said, well, I took that, I took that from you 10 years ago, and you are still ragging on yourself about that. What about shame? You know what shame is, the difference between shame and guilt? Guilt tells you when you did something wrong. Shame tells you that you are wrong. So shame has to do with who you are, and attacks your personhood. It attacks your, your core worth and value where guilt just goes after your actions or your behaviors. That's the difference between the two. So an example of that would be, um, have you ever thought to yourself that no matter how hard you tried, it wasn't enough or it wasn't good enough? Okay, that's, that's a good example of what shame is. Yeah, Max. Yeah. Did you ever grow up with the same shame on you? Were you ever told? Well, I tried my best to ignore it, but yes, I did. Yeah, shame on you. Did you hear him say shame on you? Yeah. Oh, and who in your family would have said that? Okay. We'll, uh, we'll check that out in the late service, huh? How about that? Yeah. Yeah, but, but now you think about it from that perspective. I mean, sh could a little shame be helpful? A little bit. What would the value of a little bit of shame be? That it wouldn't, that you would not go through life thinking that you're all that in a bag of chips. Now we've used that term before, right? What about a little bit of guilt? Is a little bit of guilt a good thing? Yeah, because what does that tell you? When you messed up? Yeah. Are there some people in the world that think no matter what they do, they never mess up? Yeah, so they could use a little a little guilt. They could use a little bit of that, right? Right? What about fear? What about fear? The heart condemns us with fear. Because what happens with fear is the, not just the idea of, oh, something bad's going to happen to you, but also a deeper sort of fear is that, you know what? If you don't get it together, God won't love you. And there are some Christians who, who say that. I don't know if they really believe it, but it's, you know, it's one way to get people to stand up straight and fly right, if you put the fear of God into them in that sense. So, so our hearts condemn us. So what is it that the verse says about God with respect to the idea that our hearts will condemn us? God is what? Yeah. God's love is greater. God's grace is greater. And what? He knows everything. So even the stuff that you hide from yourself, and for sure from other people, he knows everything. And yet, what does he do? He still loves you. And he says, come on, 
be with me in, uh, in paradise. Does that, does that sound pretty good? So see, that's the reassurance part. And that's what we hang on to. That's what, that's what gives us a sense of, okay, not everything in the world is what I understand. And I, God does stuff that I can't get my brain wrapped around. And, and, uh, but, but I don't have to go through my life worried about it. I don't have to, to worry that somehow or be consumed by the worry that somehow God's going to change his mind about me. Even though there might be things in my life that I think, oh, surely this would be the thing that would keep me, uh, keep me from uh, being there. Okay? All right. Are we ready to start chapter 7? I know it. Uh, let's control ourselves here. Okay. All right. So in chapter 7, okay, now, again, there's this theme that showed up in terms of Jesus uh, articulating the specifics of what his ministry is. Now, he hasn't yet said, I'm going to the cross. That, he's saving that news for toward the end, right? But people are starting to say to him, we know that you are the Messiah and we have plans for you. And the plans that we have for you will, you know, might be of personal benefit as well, all right? No hunger, no depravity, that sort of thing. All right, so let's see what happens in chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of Booth was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, the first part of it is that he wouldn't go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Did he, didn't he come to die? Yes. But it was going to be on his own time. It was going to be on the Father's will, right? It wasn't going to be when just the, the uh, religious authorities were, uh, were going to go after him. And the other thing, and, and it doesn't say this, so I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head a little bit. Were his disciples, the 12, ready to take on the mission and the ministry of what it was that ultimately they would do? No. So you sort of do get this little sense that there was training yet to be. There was work yet to be done. There, there, were, there were more people to help in some sense, but it was all about uh, also strengthening his disciple, or his 12, so that when he did leave and the Holy Spirit came upon them, they would be able to do the work that he wanted them to do. So we're told that the Feast of Booths, which was another name for that was the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Got a little note there for you commemorated the trek of the Israelites through the wilderness. It served as a Thanksgiving festival celebrating the harvest of grain, fruit, and wine. Men were required to attend the feast, and it lasted roughly about the time when the World Series is played, about uh, October 16th through, uh, through 22nd. You can kind of sense what might be on my mind as, uh, as we work these things through. All right? So, then what happens is some people come that are identified as his brothers. I'm taking that in a narrow sense of actually his brothers, like his family, his extended family. The, uh, the, the Bible sometimes will say brothers meaning uh, kinsmen. 
So it's people in the extended family. Other people look at it and say, oh no, it could be like the immediate family, brothers. And still other people say, no, this is more of a generic uh, statement of people that believed in him. But, but when you look at the context, it, it, it narrows it somewhat. Okay, So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea for what reason? Show yourself and the works that you do. Why? See, what is it that they are starting to get worried about? That this church that Jesus is growing is a shrinking church instead of a growing church, right? Because these brothers are looking at the fact that, well, we had the, you know, we sort of expect the religious elite of the day, the scribes and Pharisees, to be opposed to Jesus, so they never really joined up with him in the first place. But the people that were the followers, the general uh, public who had, had thronged to Jesus when he fed the 5,000 and had done some of the miracles, they were all about Jesus. So you have this massive congregation of people following him. Well, then all of a sudden they start drifting away. And the brothers get a little worried about that. And they say, you know what? I mean, we have bills to pay, you know? We have the light, we have the light fixtures we have to take care of, the building, all those things. And we're shrinking instead of growing. And so what do they say? They say, go to Judea. Because in Judea, you can openly have everybody see what you're doing. And then people will come back to you because look how popular you are. Did Jesus ever face popularity temptations before? When? In the very beginning. Remember the, the temptations in the wilderness? Remember? Which one of the temptations was most related to popularity? Do you remember which one it was? Jump off the temple in Jerusalem from the highest point, and then when you do, the angels will come and they'll catch you. And if you do that, you will never have any trouble at all with ticket sales. It will be awesome. <laughs> So, you know, and again, Jesus, Jesus, what, Jesus, what was he doing? He's saying, my life and my ministry and my messiahship is about the heart. It's not about the populace in terms of attracting people. People are, will be attracted, but they're attracted for the right reason. They're attracted because it's all about the change that takes place in a person's heart, irrespective of what may show up in terms, of the num- uh, in terms of the numbers. So notice what verse 5 says, a very sad statement. For not even what? His brothers believed in him. That was a hard leap for them to make. And maybe you can imagine that a little bit too. So Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So we've seen Jesus' use of the word time before. In the Greek language, there's basically two different kinds of time, two different words for time. One is chronos, which is chronology, would be our English word, meaning what? The times of the day, the hours, the years, you know, the sequence of that. That's what, that's what chronos is. What, what he uses here is the word kairos. 
And what Kairos has to do with is a specifically appointed time in which God acts and in which people's lives are impacted by faith. So when Jesus says, my time is not yet come, do you remember when we looked at the story of the wedding of Cana and uh, Mary came and said, oh, they've run out of wine, they've run out of wine. What did Jesus say? My hour or my time, and he used that word kairos. So it was this, it's, it's this idea that God has his time in mind, and that may not fit in with our idea of time or when we want him to act in, in a certain way. So what's interesting is that he uses the word time twice in that verse, and both of them are the word kairos. What he's saying is, my time hasn't come, but guess what? Yours is now. Your kairos is now. So you think, well, when, what would your kairos be? Well, for Jesus, it was when his ultimate rejection would take place where? His arrest, crucifixion, death, all those things. That was going to be the time, right? What is yours? Every single time the moment comes when you might have the opportunity to share Christ with somebody else. Or you might have the opportunity to be that Christian person in that moment. And then you have to deal with whatever comes from it. Could it be persecution? Yeah. Could it be somebody like saying, oh, you're nuts. Oh, you're one of those Bible thumpers. Oh, you're one of those fundamentalists. Oh, you're whatever. And, and in that moment, that's your kairos. And what he's saying is, your time is what? Always here. There's not a time, there's not a kairos when it isn't a kairos. Okay? Janet, did, was there something you wanted to say about that? Oh, I thought I read your mind for a moment there. Okay? All right, so then he goes into this part about hate. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Have you ever been around someone who hated Jesus that you knew? See, when somebody rejects him, could that not be a form of that hate? When someone persecutes a Christian, could that not be a form of that hate? Yeah. We may not think of it. We, most of the time we think of hate as, oh, I'm going to burn your church down, and then, yeah, okay, that would be hate. But we don't think of persecution or resistance as a form of that. But notice, he says, the world can't hate you. Well, that's true, but when the world hates Jesus, we sort of are standing in the crossfire, right? And so sometimes it's hard to sort of separate the two, isn't it? But it's important to remember that, that if you are rejected in your family, as he was rejected here in his family, that doesn't mean that they're rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus. And again, that's the comfort for us, that the rejection, it, we might feel it, we might experience it humanly, but at the end of the day, we can be kind of sad for that person because really what's happening is that they're rejecting Jesus himself. So what does he say? You go on up to the feast. I'm not going to go to the feast because I'm not ready to do that just yet. And so then after saying that, he remained in Galilee. Thoughts as we close for today? Thumbs up, thumbs down?
Thumbs up? Yeah, good. Okay, good. All right, so let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together today. Uh, Lord, there's no question that there are times in life when um, we face things, uh, situations and, and, and losses and other things in life that, that do kind of wear out or wear down our faith. It's just kind of part of being human. And there are times when we encounter other people in our lives who, who are filled with all kinds of, of, of intellectual arguments for uh, why uh, we shouldn't believe in God and, and why there is no afterlife and, and why, why, why. Lord, those are the times when we're challenged because maybe we have some doubts and maybe we have some fears. Maybe we have some, some guilt, some, some time in life when our own hearts condemn us. Thank you so much for coming to us in your word this morning and reminding us that it isn't about us, it's about you. And it's what you've done for us in sending your son to be our savior, to live and die and to rise again for us and to know we're forgiven. We're forgiven even for those times when we're weak, even for those times when we struggle. So help us, Lord, as we, as we live that faith out this week, challenge us with, with opportunities to, to share the good news with others and, and to be the good news with others. But to always know that at the end of the day, your love and your mercy are there for us. They're there for the world. And you desperately want the world to know uh, how much you love them. Watch over this week, dear Lord. Keep us safe until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.